Well, after spending some months, considerable months, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, we are uh, making a dramatic change of gears. And we are going now to the Old Testament. And we will spend a brief amount of time going through the book of Ruth. This brief book, and yet very valuable book, which talks about the Lord's providence and his sovereignty and his grace, which he pours out upon a woman who is not a part of Israel. And so this morning our sermon text comes from Ruth chapter 1, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 1 to 7. Again, Ruth chapter 1. And I want you to pay considerable attention to the context in which this book finds itself in the Old Testament. In the English versions of the Bible, it immediately follows the book of Judges, and it immediately precedes the book of 1 Samuel. And there's a significance to this placement. Uh, and I will point that out in, uh, at a later point in the sermon this morning and at various times, uh, even in the coming, uh, coming sermons that uh, we will be looking at from this, from this book. This is God's word. Listen to it. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we pray for the presence and the power and the illumination of your Holy Spirit as we consider this portion of your word this morning. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would teach us, that you would help us and enable us to feed upon your word. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would nourish our souls. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would cause us to repent and to step out in faith and in love for you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if the first five verses of the book of Ruth, which cover a span of at least ten years, if not more, if those first five verses were expanded into fuller detail, I think an accurate and, and, and appropriate representation of those first five verses would be John Steinbeck's book, The Grapes of Wrath. Steinbeck's novel chronicles the pilgrimage of the Jode family as they start out from the dust bowls of Oklahoma and work their way across the southwestern United States on Route 66 to make their way to the promised land of California. They have, they have heard rumors that there is a plentitude 
of food and work. And so they strive to make it across the country. But the road to California is full of tragedy. There is death in the Jode family. And they suffer greatly. And toward the end of the book, towards the last half or the last third of the book, when they finally make it to California, they are met with bitter disappointment. As all of the rumors that they have heard have proved not to be true. The jobs have been taken. The food has been taken. And they are left to live on uh, the, the pouring out and the, 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 basically the dole of the government. The Grapes of Wrath is a fitting summary of the Great Depression. It paints an amazingly bleak picture of that period in our nation's history. And the opening verses of Ruth paint an equally bleak picture in Israel some 3,000 years ago with far fewer words than Steinbeck employed. These verses chronicle the family of Elimelech as they leave this famine-stricken land of Judah to sojourn in the promised land of Moab. They're expecting an abundant harvest, and so they set out to make their way across and around this, the, uh, the Dead Sea, over to the land of Moab, which lies east of the Dead Sea and southeast of the Jordan River. And once they arrive there, Elimelech himself dies in this land of abundance. And his two sons follow him in death, And Naomi and her Moabite daughters-in-law have been left behind as widows to suffer this great loss. And you see, Naomi's family's desperate attempt to put bread on the table has left Naomi even more desperate. She's without a male protector. But even in such trying times, God shows that he is faithful to her and to his people. Now, the events that took place in the book of Ruth were written sometime uh, when the judges ruled, it says there in the first verse. Sometime between 1250 B.C. and 1050 B.C. is is a good estimate. And Ruth, obviously, is a short story. It's very much self-contained. But it is true. It is is an historical account of what took place in this family's life. And it is just a snapshot, likely, of what was taking place on a greater scale throughout Israel. And in this brief book, we get a glimpse of the providential hand of God as he takes Naomi and Ruth out of their land and back into the promised land and brings them into abundant blessing. And he brings an outsider. He brings Ruth, who doesn't belong in Israel. He brings her into the house of Israel, and he makes her the great-grandmother of David. More importantly, he makes her an ancestor of Christ. So as we go through these verses this morning, I would ask you to think on this thought as we work through it. In God's providence, difficult times are designed to bring his people to repentance and faith so that we may receive his abundant mercy. In God's providence, difficult times are designed to bring his people to repentance and faith so that we may receive his abundant mercy. Now, I've divided this passage up into three sections. The first, verses 1 to 2, I've titled Departure. The second, verses 3 to 5, Tragedy. And the third, verses 6 to 7, Return. Departure, verses 1 to 2, Tragedy, verses 3 to 5, and Return, verses 6 to 7. Let's look first at verses 1 to 2, Departure. 
Verse 1 sets the theme for the rest of the book. It gives a significant clue to what is going on in the state of affairs in Judah while telling us at the same time the, the time that these events took place. It says, in the days when the judges ruled. The events described in Ruth probably took place when the judges ruled during uh, the period after God's people had come into the promised land, but before they had named a king, they'd put a king uh, over them, King Saul. But more important than the date of the events that we mentioned there earlier, more important than the date, this verse gives a good example of the state of affairs in their hearts. What is going on? The condition of their obedience to the Lord. If you look back to the book of Judges, if you look back to the very last verse in the book of Judges, right before our passage this morning, you will see this verse. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This same phrase is used three other times uh, toward the end of the book of Judges to show what is going on in Israel at this time, during the time of the Judges. You see, God's people were no longer listening to God's word. They were no longer obedient to God's word. They did what was right in their own eyes. They were not listening to those who ruled over them, these judges that God had put in place. The judges themselves are no longer listening to God's word. The judges themselves are doing what they consider to be right in their own eyes. And so this is the context in which Elimelech and his family decide to leave, to leave Judah, the promised land, and to go into Moab. Now verse 1 tells us as well that there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his, and his wife and his two sons. Now there is a little bit of irony in these verses. That we may not be able to pick up on. But those ancient Hebrew readers would know exactly what's going on here. There's a famine in the land. There's a famine in, the, in Bethlehem of Judah. <coughs> Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And it probably took its name from the fact that it was in a region of plenty, of plenteous harvest. They harvested wheat and barley and almonds and olives and honey and grapes. It was a rich place of abundance. And for people who lived off the land, it was an important place. It was a place where they could survive. And so... In hearing this, and reading this, we realize that there's a famine that's taken place. The house of bread, the house of abundance, no longer has abundance. There's a clue here. The clue that the author gives by using the phrase, when the judge is ruled, is also expanded upon in this verse, in this phrase, there was a famine in the land. You see, because famine has many causes. But in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 38 to 44... The Lord describes what will happen to his people for their disobedience. And he describes famine as one of the consequences for disobedience to God's word and to his covenant. When they break the covenant, they will come under the curse of famine. And so you see, I think it's safe to say here in the book of Ruth that God's people are being chastised. They're being punished. They've come under the curse for their disobedience to God. And they are under the blight of famine. Because they have done what is right in their own eyes. They've rejected the word of the Lord. But just a few chapters later in Deuteronomy, God gives the remedy. He gives the remedy for the curse. He tells his people what they can do to have it lifted. And he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 3. And when all these things have come upon you, these cursings, 
the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and all your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes, and he will have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. But you see, God makes this promise, and yet Elimelech and his family, his wife and his two sons, they've heard the rumors of abundance in Moab, the harvest that is there, and they pack up everything, and they go. They head east. They go back across the Jordan River and out of the promised land. Now, the word that is translated return in Deuteronomy 30, verse 2, is a significant word. And it's translated in various ways throughout the Old Testament. It's translated as gone back. Turn back. Brought back. But this word that is translated return is also the main word in the Old Testament for repentance. It's the main word for repentance, to turn our backs on our sins and to turn to the Lord, which is what repentance means. And this Hebrew word, this same word that is used in Deuteronomy, is used ten times in chapter one of the book of Ruth. The first time in verse six. God's people are sinning against him. They have broken the covenant. They are disobedient. And he is using a famine to drive them out of the land and to bring them to repentance. Well, verse 2 gives us a few more details about this man of Bethlehem. His name is Elimelech. His name means God is my king. God is my king. In the time where there were no kings... Elimelech is this man's name. We are told very little about him, however. About all we know is that he was an Ephrathite from Bethlehem. And that he decided to take his wife and his two sons out of the country, out of the promised land, and into Moab. Now, we learn in Genesis uh, chapter 35, verse 19, that, that Ephrath is another name for the town of Bethlehem. It is probably the original name for the town of Bethlehem. And its usage in Ruth probably refers to one of the significant families of Bethlehem. It would be used to refer to those who are possibly the, the earliest settlers in the tribe of Judah in the town of Bethlehem. And so it is safe here to say that Elimelech and his family are part of the privileged class of Bethlehem. And again, there is irony here that this man, this man who is, who is wealthy and privileged is being driven out of the land because of famine. It would be about like seeing Jerry Jones standing in line for unemployment to receive the benefits. This is what it looks like here. But you see, if privileged member, members of Bethlehem are being driven from the land, if they are seeking employment and food elsewhere, then what are the lower classes doing? They're being driven out as well. Rather than believing God's word, rather than repenting of their sins, rather than listening to what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, as God commanded them, their idea of what is right in their own eyes is to flee before God's discipline, to turn their backs upon the Lord, and to trust in their own wisdom and their own knowledge in order to evade his chastisement. Well, the end of verse 2 says that Elimelech and his family went into the country of Moab and they remained there. <laughs> Their family wasn't simply passing through. They weren't just there for a visit. They remained there. 
Verses 1 and 2 make no explicit comments about the conditions, the condition of Israel's obedience to God. But by looking at the larger context, and we look at what's going on in Judges in this period, we see that, the, that things are not right in the land of Judah. There's a problem. Each person is doing what is right in his own eyes. And rather than repent and return to the Lord in sorrow for their sins, Elimelech, and we can safely assume many others, turned from God. They fled from his discipline. Now you and I, we know what it means to live in a culture which does what, it's right, what is right in its own eyes. All you have to do is look around yourselves and see that there is a different standard of what is true for every individual person. And that is to be expected among people who do not know the Lord, who do not trust Him. It is a problem, to be sure. But there is an even greater problem when that kind of thinking infects the church. There's an even greater problem when people inside the church sin against the Lord and are disobedient to Him, and yet call it good and right. There's a problem when we disobey the Lord and his word. And, and the case is, the fact is, that when we sin, we are doing what is right in our own eyes. We are turning from God. And God calls us. He calls you and he calls me. He calls us to repent and to return to him. To step back toward him in faith. Well, let's turn now and look at verses 3 to 5, this tragedy that, ha- that strikes the family of Elimelech. The situation for Elimelech's family gets worse. They've been, they've suffer- they're suffering famine, and now when they get to Moab, tragedy, even greater tragedy, strikes. Verse 3 tells us that Elimelech dies, and that Naomi is left now with her two sons. We don't get any details about the nature of Elimelech's death. We don't know if it was natural causes or if it was the result of some sort of brutality. The author of Ruth is not concerned with those things. He's concerned, however, with the aftermath. He's concerned to tell us what happens with Naomi and her family. A woman is left in a strange land with no one but her two sons. Now it should be noted that Moab is not a hospitable place for Israelites, is it? Moab was a descendant of Lot. They were constantly in battle. They were constant enemies of Israel. And during this time of of judges, for the most part, Moab was under Israel control, but it was more like an occupation than it was some sort of nice family arrangement. There is no doubt that the Moabites resented the fact that Israelites were coming to their land and taking grain from their fields. Well, in verse 4 we read, That in this context, Naomi's two sons, Malon and Kilion, they marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And there's nothing that says that marriage between Israelites and Moabites at this time was expressly forbidden. It was forbidden among, among Israelites and those in the land of Canaan when they came and dispossessed the people of Canaan. They were forbidden from marrying the people who lived there. But the Moabites were not in Canaan, and they were not forbidden. The marriages of Naomi's son gave some hope to Naomi that she would be able to continue the line of her husband. And after living for at least ten years in Moab, Naomi's two sons died. Tragedy 
has multiplied for Naomi. It grows. The harvest for her is a harvest of tragedy and sorrow. And verse 5 sums it up. And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. How much more can this poor woman take? You find yourself asking this question as you read it, as you carefully look through these verses. How much more can she take? She's destitute. She is a foreign woman in a hostile land. She has no male protector. Her husband, her two sons are gone. Naomi has been brought to the very end of herself. And if you understand this, if you understand this fact, then you can better understand what Naomi says in verse 13 of chapter 1, where she says to her two daughters-in-law, she says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. It's exceedingly bitter for me that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Can we blame her? Yes, the hand of the Lord. She acknowledges God's sovereignty. The hand of the Lord has gone out against her. It has been a bitter time for her. Her life since the famine began in Bethlehem has been nothing but a bitter disappointment. She has lost all hope. And as she said, the hand of the Lord went out against her, but it was to drive her to repentance. And this is the way that the Lord works with you and me. This is what he does. He uses his hand, the hand of providence, to push us to repentance. He brings about hard things in our lives. Circumstances over which we have no control. He brings them about so that we will repent of our sins. That we will turn in faith and rely upon Him instead of ourselves. Well, let's look at these last two verses of this passage. Verses 6 and 7. Return. The first five verses of this chapter have given us a very bleak picture of famine and of death. But in verse 6, we get the first glimmer of hope. We get an idea that things are about to turn. Verse 6 says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Verse 6 has the first use of this Hebrew word that is translated return. But let's not miss the point here. This is not simply Naomi coming back from vacation. This is not simply Naomi coming back from a time in a different state. This is Naomi repenting and returning to the Lord in faith and in trust. She is repenting of her family's disobedience. She is following what God prescribed for her to do, for his people to do in Deuteronomy 30. She has had everything taken from her that she could rely upon. Her home, her husband, her sons. And she has been left with two courses of action. Two things she can do here. She can fall into utter despair. She can not believe what she is hearing. These rumors of abundance and harvest in Bethlehem. She can be trapped in sin and misery. Or she can repent of her sin. And she can return to the Lord and receive his blessing. And in faith, in faith, God's word tells us that she does return to the Lord. She has been out laboring in the fields of Moab. She has heard this rumor. She's probably out there working with fellow Israelites in the field, gleaning the harvest. And she hears a rumor. Just like the Jodes heard the rumor about California. She hears a rumor that things are better in Israel. They're better in Bethlehem. All she has to do is return. 
And from a human perspective, she has every reason not to believe this rumor, doesn't she? What happens with you and me when we undergo, when we suffer trials, when we have tragedies, when we have hard things hit us? We want to disbelieve God. It's almost our immediate and knee-jerk reaction. Bad things happen to us, and we don't believe that God can be good to us. We forget the promises of his word. We say, God is not good, and he does not care for me. She, Naomi, has been dealt an awful hand in life. And she understands God's sovereignty. She knows it has come from him. And she could decide, based on her experience, that there is no way that she's going back. There's no way she's going to trust this report. She could refuse to believe that God would show compassion to his people by giving them an abundant harvest. And so what if she arrives back in Judah? What if she goes back only to find that the rumors were not true? But rather than despairing, rather than focusing on what might happen, what the bad things are that could happen, Naomi has hope. There's something There's a seed that has been planted in her heart. As a child, she has heard, she has been taught that God is merciful and gracious, that he is slow to anger, and that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And in spite of her experience, she believes these words to be true. And notice this phrase in verse 6. Don't skip over this phrase in verse 6. She heard that the Lord had visited his people. She's heard that the Lord had visited his people. This is a significant phrase. This phrase is used at key points in Scripture. One of the first places that it is used is with Sarah, Abraham's wife, just before she conceives with Isaac. Genesis chapter 21, verses 1 and 2 say this, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. It is used in the same way with Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, when the Lord blessed her with more children after the birth of Samuel. But most significantly of all, most significantly of its uses, this phrase which is used multiple times throughout Scripture, one of the most, the most significant use is in Luke chapter 1, verse 68. In Zechariah's prophecy, after his wife has given birth to John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, What does Zechariah do? His mouth has been shut for nine months. And the first words out of his mouth are these. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. God has visited his people. So this phrase has significance not just for Naomi. It has significance for us. And as Naomi steps out in faith... As she decides to believe these rumors and to trust that the Lord really would fulfill his promises to his people. As she decides to do it, we can do this as well. When God visits his people to fulfill his promises, he pours out the blessing of salvation upon them. He blesses us. And there's no greater blessing. It's not a material blessing that he gives. He does give abundance of harvest. But more importantly than that, he saves us from wrath and condemnation. Well, verse 7 says that Naomi and Orpah and Ruth set out from Moab 
to return to the land of Judah. Naomi's repentance, her return to the Lord is an act of faith. Her faith in God's promises and her belief in his word, that he is as good as his word says, causes her to get on the road and go back to her home. And we need to realize this here. I've been stressing sin and repentance, but we need to realize that not everything that, that is bad that has happened in Naomi's life or in our life happens as a, as a direct result of our sin, does it? Everything that is bad that happens in this world happens as a general result of sin, of the sinfulness of mankind, of the fall of mankind. But we cannot lay the blame directly on everything that happens with Naomi, on 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 an individual sin that she has committed. Poverty and illness and death are the result of this general effect of sin. But it is important. It is important for you and me, just as it was important for Naomi, to recognize our own sin, to repent of it. And many times we are blind to it. We cannot see it. We deceive ourselves. Our sin does not stink to us in the way that it stinks to a holy God. We need God to lovingly discipline us. We need Him to chastise us. We need Him to cause us to go through famine in our lives so that we will turn to Him. That we will no longer rely on our own strength. That we will trust in Him. And this is a difficult thing for us who live in a land of plenty to do. But God calls us to repent. Naomi recognizes that the Lord has dealt bitterly with her, and yet she still trusts in him. And the result of her faith reaches beyond herself. Look what it does. Her faith and repentance causes her daughters-in-law to come along with her. Now, granted, Orpah turns back. She goes so far and she realizes this is not for her. But the faith of Naomi, her faithfulness, her repentance, causes Ruth to repent of her sins and to to step out in faith and to follow Naomi all the way to the promised land. This is not just a story of Naomi's repentance. It is a story of Ruth's repentance as well. And without God bringing Naomi and her family to to Moab, Ruth might never have heard the wonderful news that the Lord had visited his people. But it was all a part of his plan, of God's plan, to bring Ruth into the family of Israel and into the house of David, into the house of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Naomi's story is the story of every sinner who turns to the Lord in faith and repentance. And not always, but often, it takes the pressure of God's hand and discipline to cause us to turn to Him. It is a blessed thing when covenant children grow up in the church and there's never a day where they do not know Him. There's never a day that they go through grievous sin. Yes, they sin. And yes, they need to repent. But for those of us who have strayed, who know what it means to turn from the Lord, to turn our backs on Him after He has poured out His grace upon us, this is our story. This is your and my story. And it's God's discipline in in many cases, in most cases, that drives us, that propels us back to the Lord and to His grace. Now it's important to remember one final thought. 
that for God's people there are no curses. Deuteronomy promises blessing and cursings. But for God's people there are no curses. The curses that God promised in Deuteronomy were taken up by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. As we just learned as we went through Galatians over these past many months, Jesus Christ became a curse for you and for me so that we would not have to feel the curse of God. We do not undergo His condemnation. We do not undergo His judgment and His wrath. That wrath was borne by the Lord Jesus on your behalf and my behalf on the cross. But for those who do not believe... For those who do not know the Lord Jesus, who have not trusted upon Him, who have not placed their faith in Him, who have not repented of their sins, the curse is still hanging in the air. The promise that God will curse is there. There will be no blood to come between you and the wrath of God. And so God's Word calls upon you, and I as God's servant call upon you to repent of your sins. To turn like Ruth and Naomi to the Lord. Embrace Him in faith and love and repentance. And He will embrace you. And He will wipe your tears away. And He will bring you into His house and give you every blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Thank you, O Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it teaches us your promises and your faithfulness to us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would cause us to believe and to repent and to trust in you and to walk all of our days in obedience to your word. We pray this in Christ's name.